0: In this podcast, Shernaz Dharvar, Executive Advisor at Google Ventures, talks about the fabric and the future of organization. So stay tuned. So it's running. So let me know when we can start. We can start. Awesome. So welcome everyone to Jobs of Future podcast. Today we have with us an amazing guest. We have Sharnaz Davar. She's a leading marketing, business and communication executive. She has over 20 years of experience and a proven track record in building brands and consumer perception. Scaling operations team and developing global businesses to take companies to the next level in mindshare and accelerated growth. Over her tenure, she has worked with numerous companies on a on a range of areas from Brand building to growth strategies uh, to crisis communication. They include Netflix, Walmart, Motorola, uh, Polyvore, Zynga, Khan Academy, Groupon, Cosmics, uh, 3DO, Truvio, Metaplace, Savis, Orbital Data, uh, Indiegogo, and Baidu. Uh, she currently serves as an executive um, advisor at Google Ventures. Um, she is advisor to Baobab, uh, a VR Move animation company. Voyage in the self-driving taxi space, uh, Kitty Hawk in flying cars, and Passage.ai and Paisa in enterprise and consumer space. Most recently, she was the global chief marketing officer for Udacity, where she oversaw the company's marketing, user acquisition, growth, social content branding, and partnership efforts. Under her leadership, the company's user base increased by five-fold revenue to over 100% year-over-year, and partnerships uh, with marquee companies like Udacity, a, a powerful brand. She was instrumental in changing the company's business direction from MOOC space to lifelong learning area, propelling its growth and stature. Uh, Shainaz serves as a chief marketing officer and head of investor relationship at Inktomi for six years. Uh, under her leadership, Inktomi became one of the hottest internet names, uh, reaching the valuation of 37 billion. Shainaz uh, started her career at Sun Microsystem, where she built a brand name for Solaris, the sun operating system and and headed up the company's european software initiative from paris shinas holds an undergrad degree from stanford and uh, uh, phi beta kappa and a masters degree from harvard university with that shinas welcome to the podcast thank you Vishal. awesome so i think one thing that i find really fascinating about uh, about your your background shinas was that um, when i was looking at your profile almost every company that you have touched is either defining the future of work, worker, or workplace, or they are disrupting the current business model or the conventional business model to define how we look at technology, how we look at the future. So tell, tell us, walk us through your journey um, uh, of uh, your background and what brought you to this this point.
1: So I actually grew up in Bombay. Uh, I happened to have been born actually at Stanford, and then I did my undergraduate and graduate work over here at Ivy uh, schools at Stanford and Harvard. I got fortunate in the sense that I got to look at a lot of evolutions in Silicon Valley because I always stayed in technology. So I got to see the move from mini computers to personal computers, got to see the move to mobility, got to see the move to the internet, in which I took a part in, uh, also got to see the move on how everything was basically going to be on semiconductor chips and then moved over to software and now it's actually coming full circle and a lot of those capabilities are moving back to ASICs and chips and got to see new technologies like VR, like autonomous cars, etc. Um, and that's kind of what led me overall to try and join companies that were either reinventing the future with their product standpoint or reinventing the future, reinventing the future, excuse me, with the way they talked about their culture and the people. One of the big benefits of working in Silicon Valley is you do get to see kind of the crazy people, the troublemakers, the mavericks, but we're kind of the ones that actually make a dent in the universe, so you'd like to believe that, and so you get to learn a lot. Uh, I think through the years, there have been a lot of successes, but there have been a lot of failures and I feel that my best lessons have actually been learned through yes via the failures but also via the repeated successes mm.
0: interesting. Um, thank you for walking us through that so what is um so what do you do now like what what Where do you spend your time today?
1: So right now, I actually spend a lot of time consulting and advising to different companies. I spend a good amount of my time being an executive advisor to GV, which is Google's venture arm. Uh, It was formerly known as Google Ventures. I spend a lot of time advising tiny startups, like they could be six people or larger ones overall. Areas that I'm interested in that I focus on right now is a lot kind of in the enterprise space. A little bit in the life sciences space, because I believe that's an industry that's going to get disrupted. A lot in the autonomous space with self-driving car company, as well as a flying car company. Um, And generally, just because of my background, I spend a fair amount of time in the consumer space. I spend a lot of my time also mentoring young entrepreneurs, um, which I actually have to say personally enjoy a whole lot.
0: No, I I do appreciate you for that. I think we... um, uh... Entrepreneurship always needs good sort of mentors and advisors and, and always uh, the hunger is all the more increasing nowadays. so I do appreciate you spending your time there. So now let's let's talk about um, from your vantage point I think that as I was I was mentioning earlier that you have been through a lot of disruption a lot of this disruption cycles and, and and so from your vantage point, where do you see the future of work happen like taking shape and what's what's your perception of that? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair. Fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast.
1: So, first of all, I'm really glad you have a topic that you're focusing on on this. In fact, I, as I was saying right before we went on to the podcast, I was just talking to somebody in the AI space exactly about this this morning. So, the way I look at it is there are certain macro trends that are happening in the world today. Uh, and we see them a whole lot more in the United States, but I think that's just global. So number one is we're living longer. So if you're in the United States, your average age span is about 82, and if you're a woman, it's much longer. Even in developing countries, your age span is increasing. Number two is that there is no job security. So Mm. unlike in, I would say, maybe our parents' and grandparents' generation, where you got out of school, you went and got a job and you stayed in that job for 40 years, and you got a silver watch at the end of it, and you could you know, count on Social Security if you were in the United States, all of that has gone. So if you look at it, the uh, Labor Bureau in the United States says that people will change their careers every 4.6 years. In Silicon Valley, it's almost every 18 months. So given that that's going on, that's the second trend. And then the third trend that's happening is technology is underscoring every industry be it healthcare, education, government, politics, uh, transportation. So with these three trends, if that's what's gonna happen, nobody can stop it. I was doing a presentation to senators on Capitol Hill uh, a few months ago and it was the same thing. It's like you and I is sitting anywhere in the world or in any kind of corridor of power can stop those trends. So if that is the case, then we've got to figure out how we get prepared for it. So if you look at it overall, 10 years ago, if you and I were talking, there were no jobs really like cloud specialists. I don't think mm-hmm. anyone even understood the word. There was no really big job like Android program or iOS. If you had social manager as a job, people thought that was the person that did the party that everyone mm-hmm. got invited to. Right. Today they've become jobs that are very much in demand. If you look at and starting salary for an Android developer across the United States, it's $82,000. That's a big jump in what Mm -hmm. you could be getting if you were not an Android developer or if you're doing something else. Mm -hmm. But that's just 10 years ago. Five years ago, you know, for argument's sake, you were a young person going into school and you were staying in school for four or five years, there were jobs that didn't exist. Drones as an industry didn't exist. Right now, there's a lot of hiring going on in drones. Autonomous cars. I work at an advisor company called Voyage, which is in the Mm self-driving taxi space. That never existed five years ago. An area that's really near and dear to my heart is anything with genetics and genomics. CRISPR as a technology, which Mm -hmm. is the ability to do gene editing. There are a lot of jobs there. Now there are about 10 companies that are in the so-called flying car space. And that was just five years ago. If you and I were talking two years from now, I don't know what jobs there are that didn't exist a few, you know, when you and I are talking today. The other area that's big, that's growing right now is crypto. The amount Mm -hmm. of cryptocurrency jobs with Bitcoin, Ethereum, blockchain, all of those didn't exist five years ago. So if you know these three trends, I'm living longer, I have no job security and technology is underscoring every industry, and the jobs that I have today will not be the same jobs that I could have five or ten years from now how do i do what do i do with my workforce if i'm a leader and then what do i do as a worker are the things that we have to grapple with
0: interesting i think that's a, that's a very um nicely put by the way so um i think one thing that 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 i that i recall a recent conversation i had with one of the uh executive at a chip comp, chip making company and he was he was telling me that in in 1980s or in 1970s when we had like um either um, the storage disruption or the process, uh, the more slot disruptions. Uh, at that point, not like the technology were disrupting the industry, but they're not disrupting at the pace that they're disrupting now, right? Right now, almost every industry is see, seeing its S-curve disruption, right? So, and when, when you're going through your disruptive times, like you cannot think of something as stable. It's still maturing every day. It's, it's, it, things are things are riling up. That So now the interesting thing is lot of technology lot of businesses are relying on technology which are disrupting right now and and i think one in in one of my recent conversation with one of the power plant executive he was telling me that hey vishal do you want to see the madness i said huh, show me so he showed me a a, a small boiler uh, and he said mm-hmm. let me let me pull out the list of all the boiler parts that boiler is using and and it it gave i think about um, 200 some parts that was used there and he was telling me the entire sort of system is now they're all sort of evolving. They're producing quick new versions and whatever, and it's it's nightmare for us to keep up. What's going on? So now, when you when you when you look at that vantage point of where the technology disruption is happening, and then you look at sort of um, uh, how our ability to retool ourselves is shaping up, what do you see? Like what where do you see these these guys merge, and what do you see um, as as a resolve of like can we catch up or are the technology that we are working on they are stable enough that we can rely we can create a billion dollar businesses on 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 these grounds which are shaky or like what's your thoughts on that we'll resume after a short break this part of the podcast is brought to you by first friday fair fastest ai powered way to find your next opportunity check out the website first friday and find your next dream job, let's get back to the podcast.
1: Look, there's a lot of industries that are yet to be created to be, you know, multi-billion dollar industries. There are a lot out there. I think there's a big premise, which is kind of where we started this conversation, is how do you kind of capture these and what do you do? And I have a deep belief that lifelong learning is the way you have to do it. Uh, because if you don't, you're just not going to learn the latest. Even for me, I am constantly learning all the time. Any field, whether it's marketing, finance, engineering, they've all been disrupted, and they're all looking at different ways to do it. Um, and so if you don't have a mentality within yourself that says I have to constantly learn, I think you're going to be in a, in a difficult place. So I have a simple calculation I do. If you decide, let's decide you and I are going to live to be 70, okay? And we both graduated from undergrad and maybe we graduated at 22. Maybe we did a, back, you know, maybe we did a masters, whatever, but let's say 22. This means that 48 years of our life is going to be involved in working. And if you and I said, all I learned when I was till 22 is what's going to take me over, that's not going to work, particularly in an industry, like you said, that is rapidly changing. Mm. So my work life is actually going to be almost three times or at least twice what my kind of childhood was. And Mm. if you put that in perspective, you realize I'm going to have multiple careers. I'm going to have multiple jobs. How do I prepare myself for it?
0: interesting well said so i and, and one more thing um that i find fascinating so i remember like talking to one of the university in lo- local in boston and and i was telling him hey they were putting out a data science program and i said hey um it's a two-year degree and i was ta- and and i'm i'm always the guy ranting about this fact that I, as an entrepreneur i want someone baked by the end of the weekend and you you say that in two years you'll get me an executive or you'll get me a master's student. Who is barely enough? They know what's going on, and I think from that perspective, I do appreciate the existence of Udacity and and sort of uh, these these platform, uh, Udemy and all. So, f- from your brief stint, from your stint um, uh, from uh, in, in in Udacity, and from that vantage point, where do you see uh, the reskilling market sh- uh, going uh, shaping up? Like what what do you see as a result? number 1 where do you see sort of individual getting retrained that market is going and then, and number 2 where do you see organizations getting uh, these folks i remember i, I was looking at the shrm um two interesting slides on on their on their deck so one deck was saying hey uh, folks who come from university uh, they are not uh, they're not baked and number 2 i don't have resources to bake them and and i think there was a third slide which was telling them that i we give them enough like we give them enough autonomy to work. So number one, they are not prepared. I don't have time to prepare them, but I want them to be autonomous. So how would that, uh, that resolve? Like what has been your observation, um, from learning marketplace? What's happening?
1: Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And it's what people are grappling with across the board. So I look at the lifelong learning market as a very big market. I also look at it as a market that's very divided. I don't think it's a market that's a winner-takes-all market because Mm -hmm. learning is very different for different people. So if you look at it overall, what people – you're right. We I hear this a whole lot. People come out of university, and they're just not ready for it. So what we did at Udacity was to try and take our nano nanodegrees, just for everyone to know it's kind of a micro-credential mm-hmm. that gives you the skills specific to a job within a short period of time and matched it to specific jobs. So you could do the Android nanodegree and then you could get an entry-level job. If you decide if you want an advanced job, then you have to do the Android one and then do one after that uh, overall. So I do believe there are going to be lots of companies that are going to focus on learning specific to a job. So I think Coursera is trying to do that right now. There's a company called Lambda School that is trying to do that right now and really focusing it on skills. What a lot of the companies are doing, it actually included, is talking to the employers. Mm. Let's talk to Google to find out what they really need. Let's have Googlers teach the course so you know really what they're looking for in an Android developer and then give that out there. And the benefit of a nano degree is you can be mid-career, you can be younger, whatever it might be, but it's on your own time. Then there's a whole area that's the boot camps, like general assembly, Mm. et cetera. And those are really good for somebody who wants to kind of take a very specific, deep, immersive course for six to eight weeks and basically do it 24-7. And that kind of gives you a further credential overall. There are other areas too. If you look at Pluralsight, for example, that is a company Mm -hmm. that just files to go public. They do a big business, you know, overall in the management space and in nursing. So there are lots of different areas. We often talk about it just because, I think you happen to be in Boston and I happen to be in Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley on the technology focused ones. Mm -hmm. But nursing is a huge shortage in the United Mm -hmm. States. It is also Mm -hmm. one of the most difficult schools to get into. If you could do a nursing degree online, that's one of those jobs that's not gonna go away. Mm-hmm. If you look at any economist report, nursing, uh, career providers for later in life are just increasing all the time. There's other ways to look at it overall too. And then there are a lot of ancillary companies coming up and they're very good too. Like they will go to an enterprise and say, let's map out your entire job spec. What are all the areas that you need jobs in and let's see how we can reskill people because one of the things that happens when you're the leader of a company is you don't wanna just kick out people and hire new people. It's really hard to do it all the time. A far better way to do this is to reskill your employee base. So one of my favorite examples here is AT&T. Their CEO Mm. decided to reskill half their workforce, which is tremendous, um, across the board in all kinds of different programs, including Udacity, to just kind of get them up to speed on the latest technology. So you can do it from both ends and be able to do that. I think the challenge, which I will bring up too, is do companies recognize these programs? I think that's the big challenge, right? It's so much easier to say, I went to Boston University and I got this and you as an employer automatically know, okay, it's worth something. You know, As an employer, how much is a Udacity credential worth or a General Assembly credential worth? And that's the part that's harder I feel like in the coming years these guy we are going to get more credibility with companies and that's going to change so one of the ways i look at it is how many people in their linkedin profile put that they've completed a udacity course or a coursera course you know and how do employers look at it and that i think will change in time interesting so i think
0: you pretty much um, um stole my next question on that. So I, I do appreciate you jumping on that. And and that's a very, very good segue into what, what I wanted to ask you is, so um, so when we talk about um, credentials, as you rightly said, right? So degree programs. So in, in, in the existence of something like Udemy and Coursera, and, and I'm, I can only speak about my side of the story as an entrepreneur, that many times I want someone to solve my current problem, right? Because I otherwise I won't exist tomorrow. So I not, so, and, and if, if we look at, say some of the companies who are following so like Ernst Young and Young and a lot of these, uh, they said, okay, we don't care about degree. We just care about, I don't know how, how to, they are to, to their word, but at least they market that, right? So they are vocal about this, this fact that, Hey, this is something is going on. And then on the other side, I remember like talking to, uh, one of the university in Georgetown, um, uh, and, and, and we were talking about the course program and length and, and, and what and whatnot, and I, I gave them this idea and they said, okay, um, sure. We'll execute this idea, but it, it will take us like two years before it, before we get approval. Right. So, and I don't even know if, if I will exist in two years, right? At least that idea exists in two years. So right. the pace in which these come, these universities and these a- academic institution sort of uh, evolve is extremely slow. And as a business, I'm always looking at sort of talent pool quickly. So how real um, do you think are sort of the credential from these universities and, and and these institutions when I need someone to solve my problem today quickly or like where do you see what's your vantage uh, and and you you gave definitely some perspective, but what do you think would be relevance of uh, would we still be looking for credential whether it's udemy or whether it's uh, this university? As, as a business or would I just say, um, I just need this guy. And in these courses, you say, I've done these courses and then I'll test you on it. What's your thoughts on that? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair. Fastest AI powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast.
1: So it depends. You know, I fully believe that education, changing education is almost like changing the church or changing religion. Uh, Mm. It's a big old institution. If you have kids and your kids get into Dartmouth or Cornell, you're not going to tell them, don't go to Dartmouth or Cornell. Why don't you sit and take a course online or, you know, whichever way. You're just not going to do that. There is a certain amount of things that a university gives to a young adult that you do not get overall from sitting and watching things either online or in a group or in any setting, right? There is a whole lot of that. So I don't believe universities will go away. I think this was one of the biggest misconceptions, to be honest, I think maybe around that 2012, 2013 timeframe where people believed the MOOCs, as they were called, were going to take Mm -hmm. over colleges. And I think that did a disservice to everyone. I think it did a disservice to students, to the companies and to universities, um, you know, overall. I do believe that having a credential from a CMU or, you know, from a college is important. I think it is important when you're young in life to go in and have the experience and see what it's all about. Because the university is not all about academics, it's a lot about other things. I do think that a lot, once you get out of college, Um, and you get your first job or your second job, and when the technology changes, you probably don't have the ability to go back to school. You know, A, you probably are not in that time frame, you know, in that mind Mm. frame. You probably have other obligations, and that's kind of, at least the way I look at it, that's where a lot of things like a Udacity or a General Assembly or any of these other schools kind of come up. Um, It's important. The other thing that I do see is some of the forward-thinking universities are already looking at these Mm. things. So I happen to have gone to Stanford and happen to live in Stanford's backyard. They're definitely looking at these things. They know there is a population that they could do things with, and that's happening. So there is that part. So I think there's going to be a couple of things that happen. Universities will stay. Mm -hmm. I think there'll be a lot of people that look at various credentials. I think there could be a time where some of these uh, courses might be better for people that might want to decide, I don't want to go to a community college. I want to go and do these and be in a specific area. So, like I said, lifelong learning is everyone is very different uh, overall, and something that might be good for you may not be good for me at all
0: interesting and and if I'm a business uh, and and i'm I'm anxious about the future, how would I look at um, educating my workforce like what are your what are your thoughts on 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 that?
1: So um, I have a firm belief and I see it more and more. I wouldn't have said this five years ago, but in the last few years. CEOs of companies, and you can watch them when they speak, they are all talk about retraining or mm. upscaling or educating their workforce because as you get bigger and bigger and technology changes you know, the best thing to do is to educate your workforce. And if you can give them the tools to do it, that's great. You know, companies that are large like Google, Walmart, Amazon, you know, allow people to kind of go and learn and then they basically reimburse it. Other companies, you know, like Apple have their own university to be able to Mm. do that. And they've been doing this for years. It's just that nobody ever talks about it. You know, Facebook has a similar program. So if I look at it overall, that's kind of the way it's going. I was talking to a company the other day And they actually help enterprises figure out a roadmap for how to train their employees. And Mm. they are already in about close to 30% of the Fortune 500 companies. So if these companies are already doing this and they're thinking about it, they know it's important and they know know what's going to get them ahead. Um, A large part of the partnerships from a Udacity standpoint are not only actually in the United States, but the company has a big partnership with Infosys to kind of train their workforce out of India. Um, you know, And all the companies are recognizing this because I think, like I said earlier, you know, first we had the mentality, I said, okay, if Shanaf can't do the job, let's just fire her and bring somebody else in. Mm. The reality is it's really mm. hard to bring a new person in mm. to onboard them, to get them into the team and all of that. And when you look at the time it takes, versus reskilling me to get to be a better Kafka engineer, for example, it's far more worth it. And I'm going to stay at the company because if you go back to that earlier trend, people are leaving companies, you don't want them to leave either. Uh, you know, Walmart, for example, which I worked at for a couple of years, has a huge engineering organization under the Walmart Labs moniker. And basically that entire workforce has to get reskilled in very different things. You know, they have to get reskilled on supply chain. They have to get reskilled on mobile. They have to get reskilled on IT. Very, very different things than getting reskilled at a company, um, you know, like Cloudera, for example.
0: Interesting. And one more thing that that we were we were when we were researching about the future of work, right? So um, one thing that I I came across is the idea of true learning. That true learning is not only just the training, but the folks that are working around you and the on the job training, that kind of work that you get and how it trains you um, as you're working. So how real is that? Like how feasible and like from your vantage point, from whatever you have seen, how real is achieving this milestone of, hey, your coworkers would be an uh, sort of instrumental part in your growth and learning, as well as um, this fact of um, sort of, the kind of work that you do and 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 integrating that to your your learning and goal object or learning growth objectives and then obviously adding you to the training like from what what are, from your vantage point what have you seen
1: yeah, so actually, I think this has nothing to do almost with learning. It's people have always said this, and research has proven it time and time again. People learn better along with peers. So I mm-hmm. used to work at Khan Academy, and I'll give you our experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was earlier on, and we wanted to get into the school districts. And even though it's not about lifelong learning, it's K-12, mm-hmm. it still holds.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: What we found is that with Khan Academy, the teacher could actually spend more time with the kids that needed more help. But what they also found is if they had a peer come in and teach the child a little bit more, they did far better. And it turns Mm -hmm. out that the peers around you, it's not, they tend to be more collaborative and that helps people get ahead. And that was one of the more, I would say, interesting aha moments of the whole thing Mm -hmm. because our whole premise had often been, well, can we get the teacher? And Mm -hmm. we suddenly realized it didn't have to be the teacher. If Johnny was a little bit more ahead than Anne and can get her you know, right up to speed on the English assignment or whatever it might have been, that helps a lot too. Uh, so th- that holds right from childhood. So I have this definitely a collaboration and the peers you know, make it better because taking learning aside, if you look at any successful company, it isn't built up of singular individuals, even though we mm-hmm. like having a belief that it's all the founder, it's a team of people they all seem to work together either as a machine or some way create magic and move the company forward. Interesting. And
0: and in your background, um, you have worked with a lot of companies in in, in their early infancy to all the way um, to their unicorn status. Like, <clears throat> What have been sort of your observation on some of the things that these companies did right when it comes to sort of uh, empowering their workers and what are some of the best practices that you could share from from your experience
1: yeah so i got um, you know i got to work with a lot of different companies at different stages i'll tell you the thing that matters the most in hiring teams and i spend a lot of time on this topic is hiring the right people and a simple way to look at it is a players will hire a players but b players will hire b players and they'll also hire c players and the b and the c players bring your company down. They're almost like this thick clotted cream on the top and you can't move. And then what happens is your A players leave out of frustration because nothing's moving and you're stuck with the B and the C players. So when you're hiring, choose carefully. Mm -hmm. Don't choose rapidly because you believe you need to have a person with two Mm -hmm. eyes and a nose and then that's going to work because I would say at least in the United States and in Europe, it is very hard to get rid of people uh, and you wanna be careful there, uh, and that's important. I Very often when I say this, my startups will go, yeah, but we really need to move fast, and I go, great, then go hire a consultant. They're probably really good, they're probably smart, and you can fire them at any time. Uh, so choose carefully with who you're hiring. Um, I got fortunate to lead a lot of groups. I will definitely hire that way. The second thing Mm. that I will always tell people is don't judge a person by their resume. Because Mm. very often what happens is the resume makes you look amazing. You're supposed to. Mm. But kind of go through the depth of it. If you are a 20-person company that's doing a very hard AI technology and you want to hire a general manager for whatever reason, and that person comes with this incredible title, VP of strategy, senior VP of et cetera, et cetera, from AI on Wall Street. My God, you're going to fall in love with that woman because Mm. the resume looks good. When you bring them in, chances are they've never worked at a 20-person company. They are used to having two assistants, and so there's not the right fit uh overall and it's probably not going to work and i say this only because i've been through this experience multiple times so this is a true story just kind of you know got it in a little way so you want to just be careful so i always tell people don't judge a person by their resume that can let them open the door but spend time with them and the third thing i will say is hire people that don't look and think like you hmm. if i'm leading a group i should not be hiring everybody from stanford i just should not even though it sounds great they'll chances are we'll probably think alike and that doesn't help. I think in the early stages of a company to get a prototype up and running fast, yes, hire people like you just to get it out. But then after that, which is basically after the first four or five people, hire people that don't look like you and that don't think like you. So my best successes from a business standpoint have been with teams that are diverse. Um, and that's really important. And and. Um...
0: So what are some of the hacks? Like, what are some of the, if, if you can share uh, some of the best practices that you have used over, over the years to hire someone or at least found your best hires, like what are some of the ingredients of that process that you could share um, for our listeners?
1: So I'll definitely look at people outside of my immediate network, uh, just overall and try and see what that is. Once I hire the people, I have to empower them. So I tend to want to hire people that are smarter than me in a specific area. And this is where leaders, I would say, very often fall short because they're very nervous about hiring somebody smarter than them because they feel that then they're going to take them off their perch. And the way I look at it is I should be hiring people all of which in some way, shape, or form on my senior team should be groomed to take over my position. And it's a little bit of a different mentality. So if I am hiring a growth marketer, he should know far more than me in growth marketing. If I'm hiring a media person, they should know far more than me overall. Once you get them in, you need to empower them. You need to let them have enough rope, so to speak, that they can kind of go to the edge and then you can kind of have some you know, way to catch them, but let them take risks. Let them experiment and understand that experimentation is a good thing. And if it fails, it's also a good thing because if you constantly experiment and you're constantly succeeding, something's wrong. You're not experimenting, right? Um, so I do have a big belief in that uh, overall. I also do believe that the, everybody has to move to something bigger than their mm. just current job. You have to believe in life that you're making a dent somewhere. At least that's the way I look at my life. And maybe that's not the best thing, but if they're not going on a journey that's far bigger than them, you're going to lose them. You know, there have been so many studies done talking about how customer service reps, for example, are probably one of the most unsatisfying jobs. It's a painful job, you're just getting people that are complaining. Uh, Mm. If you let the customer service person know something personal about the customer, their entire demeanor changes because they feel they're doing something more than just answering the question. Um, so I feel like that a lot. And then one of the last things I often will tell people is don't look at your career with me as a ladder. You know, I come in as an Mm. associate, then a junior associate, senior, then manager, director, VP. I think the world is changing. And if you think of your career less as a vertical ladder, but more as a jungle gym where you kind Mm. of get broad experience across areas, that helps a lot. It's a little bit like, I think you and I were talking about before the podcast um, is get a lot of experiences and then you can do a whole lot. And I did this in my career. Instead of going up a vertical ladder, I decided to go to Europe and start a program uh, overall there, which forced me off the career ladder in headquarters, but helped me get broader experience. Um, and I think that's really important too.
0: Interesting. And um you talked about jungle gym and i think whenever i hear jungle gym i think one of the things that that i i use very often in, in my pitches um so when companies are really early in their inception they are pretty much like jungle gym right so managing people managing sort of culture everything is jungle gym then you pretty much as you grow you get into this so-called off-road off-roading so you know some space is going on but still you and then there's a highway then you just have to scale scale and scale so you have in your journey you have Taken the companies through all all the three verticals so what are some of the some of the changes that you observe or changes that or some of the best practices that you could share um, while you were trans while you are transforming from say or a a very incepting concept company to uh, a multi-billion dollar uh, corporation so what are some of the thoughts that you could share
1: so some of the things that do happen along that journey is your entire workforce goes away and it comes up again. And that's okay. You know, the people that were the best when you were a 10 person company, chances are probably not the best when you're 150 and probably not the best when you're a thousand. And that's okay. It is okay to flip over your entire workforce if need be and be able to do that. And you have to know that because it's also very often, you know, some of the best engineers in the world don't want to manage people. Uh, They are incredibly good at creating new technologies and innovating. They don't want to just keep iterating. And very often, when you become big, it just becomes more of a management challenge. So I think there's a large part of that. Core things that hold, and I will share this, is what the founder believes in. So when a founder starts a company, It is their baby. It is their idea. They're the ones who've been eating the ramen noodles for God knows how many nights. They're the ones that have been begging to get venture funding. It is their thing. Whatever happens, whether you're six people or you're 6,000 people, the founder's values and vision should still hold. You know, even today at Walmart, which is a huge company, it has over a million, 1.5 million people working there. The founder's vision, who is no longer even alive, Sam Walton of EDLP, which is everyday low prices, that still holds. So as you kind of go through a fabric of where you are from when you're really tiny to as you're scaling is really important. Netflix, which is considered to be one of the most incredibly successful Mm. companies, the values of what that company started out with, with Reed Hastings, it still holds. And that's important. And I think particularly important as you scale is your culture. And I feel sometimes we forget about it because we're Mm. just focusing on getting product out and our customers. But really, your most important audience as a leader is your employees. They're the ones that have decided to come and work for you. They're the ones that get up every morning and have to be excited for what they're coming to believe in. And that doesn't change regardless of where you are. And those things are really, really important. So I cannot stress how important it is to have weekly meetings with your entire company, whichever way you do it. Whether you're large, you're tiny, it doesn't matter. Your employee is your core asset and most valuable and that's the most important thing to look at and that doesn't change overall
0: interesting and and you you also have a successful career as a marketer right so you have been uh, leading marketing for a lot of these companies um so from from your marketing vantage point when you see when you see sort of this 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 growth or this transformation how does like and it's your job to sort of understand the culture and then connect it with the with the client somehow and and sort of create this bonding so what, what have you seen are some of the best practices that companies who have actually grown uh, from a very tiny entity to, to a big corporations, how do they end up discovering and communicating the, that cultural values that ultimately not only get, got them some lifelong clients, but also a constant stream of talent that they need?
1: So a lot of it, like I said, actually has to start from the founder and generally most of the companies will have the founder in some perspective. You know, if you look right. at successful companies, the founder is either the chairman, they might have a new CEO, or they're still the CEOs. you know, overall, and that has to transcend. And then there's also just, you know, very logical, basic things to do, you know, have and I'll just give tactical examples, have a program like Slack. Running your office where people can have a lot of conversations. Have groups that are connected to certain interests, you know, overall. Have a weekly meeting where people can air their questions, whatever they might be. That's really important. And also live your culture. There's no reason to say something, but then not follow it. You know, what's going on right now, I would say in my industry or largely the industry I work in, which is tech is tech has become a formidable industry in the last 20 years. And it has created a lot of wealth in a very short amount of time. And most of us remember it, you know, overall. And so what's going on with leaders at companies is now it's not enough just to be the leader of a tech company. You have Mm -hmm. to have an opinion of things in the world. You have to have an opinion on immigration. You have to have an opinion this week on Pride Week because that's what's Mm -hmm. going on right now you have to have an opinion on tariffs. That never happened a few years ago. So suddenly, as the leader of a company, you're not only talking about your product and your employees, you have to have a view that may or may not agree with your entire workforce. And But I do feel people that are transparent and honest about it and say, this is what our view is going to be and this is how we're gonna manifest it, you get a lot of respect from employees. In being able to do that and you know and looking at the marketing person's job you know it's more of an idea of how you get it out there and communicate it in the best way like you'll see this week in silicon valley i think a lot of websites will do some recognition of pride week, um mm. you know overall just because for us in the valley it's something that people care about and people have an opinion on
0: interesting and i think one more thing that i was thinking about so we both are blessed with the ecosystem that we live in is very tech savvy so they understand where the technology the technology is going what are, how what and how are it disrupting um, the the business landscape if you see many of the great organizations which stays in say either midwest or the areas which are, which doesn't have access to these sort of uh, uh, so called tech, amazing technological uh, behemoth corporations living close by to get to get the, to get the perspective what is the hope for them like what do you suggest these companies do to keep themselves at pace with what's happening what what's your thought on that
1: well i think a lot of them are doing it i mean really i think we are myopic in silicon valley thinking that we know <laughs> everything i mean at&t is an amazingly innovative company and it is nowhere headquartered either where i live or mm. in boston you know mm. at all i mean they're doing it accenture is doing an amazing amount of things it's Uh, Walmart is headquartered in Bentonville, and they're Mm. doing a whole lot of things overall, too. Uh, So I don't think, I think what happens, particularly with media and with social, is we kind of focus on the two coasts. But I Mm. think there's a lot of really interesting innovation and really interesting learning that is going on um, in definitely in the, the Midwest states and things of that nature overall. And they are the ones that have the big companies. You know, if you want to change right. the face of the Fortune 500 companies, you're going to talk to Coke, Coles, Walmart, Safeway, mm. you know, Pepsi, that's where you're going to go. And that those are the guys who are the customers. And that's what the beauty is on the whole thing is they're the ones that are taking your technology and actually distributing
0: it. Interesting. No, I think that's a, that's a very good perspective. And I, I do definitely agree with you on, on at least some of these unicorns they exist they exist at a very remote location there but i think many of the many of the conversation that we had um, in, in our, it, i think i remember i, I, I did a, a year and a half um, long sort of touring cities in in, in us and meeting nice. entrepreneurs and and trying to understand what's going on and we met a lot of um, mid size and mid to uh, mid to large size and and in some cases small small size businesses and we spoke to them and we realized that a lot of these guys are very um very laid back in culture they are very the culture is very heavy very strong family culture and what and what not and they don't have too much visibility into some of the practices that that we take it for granted at uh, at least in in my co side so i definitely point them to hey why don't you many of the it's it's funny like i i, I was i was talking to an IT manager and I was talking to him about tech crunch. He said, so "What's tech crunch?" So that's it's that's hard to imagine, right? So that today anyone, uh, so but those guys exist. So what are what, what do you suggest those guys? What should they do?
1: So I actually, it's funny you should say that. I always also sometimes look at it differently and going, well, what should we do to understand what they're going through? Absolutely.
0: Beautiful, yes.
1: Uh, you know, overall in doing it. Um, And, you know, there's a mix of, you know, both of it, you know, kind of coming out. You know, if you look at the automotive manufacturers that are now calling themselves the mobility services business, apparently, they're all out, you know, Ford, GM, none of them are kind of, you know, located here. A lot of the bigger companies are doing something interesting where they're putting a lot of their labs actually in Silicon Valley. So Mm. I came into Walmart because of an acquisition Mm. and it was Walmart's first, uh, acquisition in the technology space. And we created Walmart Labs, just kind of where Mm -hmm. a lot of the developers sit right now. And since then, a lot of companies have created kind of lab operations in Silicon Valley to kind of get access to the best talents and innovation. So, you know, Ford has one, GM has one, I think a lot of companies out of China have one. And a lot of them are doing that to kind of get the best of Silicon Valley. I would say a lot of One of the good things that's happening is a lot of people from the tech uh, area are also going and funding companies outside of the two coasts. So Steve Case, uh, who was the founder of AOL, is very prolific in this area of trying to do that. And in fact, they have something called Startup Grind, which is a conference here Mm. that happens, I forget, in the February-March timeframe. And I spent an afternoon talking to female entrepreneurs, none of which were from the coast. And those mm. ideas are great. And you know, if you have the ability to nurture them, it's going to do tremendously well for the country and the GDP in general.
0: Interesting. Actually, so it, it reminds me of, and by the way, well said on the fact that we should be doing something for, for to solve that problem. Because I, I remember like, uh, the thing that that, <clears throat> that I got uh, hit by <clears throat> was one of the conversations with one of the executives uh, in one of the city. Uh, and, and he told me that hey, Vishal, you guys are East and West phenomena. I said, what do you mean by that? And his perspective was, hey, you guys come with your fancy blah, blah, blah jargons and, and then you throw it at us and we start to whatever. And, and and I was pretty much trying to understand how much they use data in the decision making. Mm-hmm. I was doing that that research. And then I said, hey, what what can what can I do to solve that problem? So he said, go figure it out. Like you guys are, you have all the answers somehow. Can you sort of, so I, I told him that. Um, so long story short, uh, they said why can you create a platform in which education comes to us before we get into the education and and from that perspective and, and and i think that from and that was like four five years six years back so i'm hoping that um like udacity and all that like they they fill that void pretty nicely right because previously it was very difficult to figure out what's going on and right now it, things are really 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 cool on that perspective so that's that's pretty awesome so now um as if we move on to the to sort of um uh in if i if i'm a business today right and and i want to um sort of future proof myself what are and and if you wear your marketing hat or marketer's hat what would i do to sort of ensure that um i can compete when it comes to talent uh, with say companies like google and facebook and what and what not what are some of the things that you have seen in your experience in in helping out a lot of interesting startups they do um to successfully compete uh, on a talent market
1: no it's a it's a popular question right now uh, talent i think in engineering is really really hard to get right mm. now if you're but you know the way i look at it if we look at the world that says okay it's only going to be these big companies. Then there, mm. you know, the entire mm. culture of America just kind of goes away. The whole country was built on the idea that you had the ability to have all of these kind of small companies come up. Um, and one of the biggest things that we find is it's very often hard to compete on salary and compensation. But mm. if you're not hugely disparate, which you really should not, you should try mm. not to be. And you can convince people on the mission and the fact that they will have a bigger impact at the company, that will often drive people. Uh, because when you're at a big company, chances are it's big and there's lots of people over there and everybody's going to be able to do something. But the impact that you have in a, I would say, 50-person company compared to a 2,000-person company is a lot different. And so you tend to hire people that believe they can make a difference and have the ability to do it. One of the most interesting things that actually does happen in the Valley is a lot of people that come from the companies that you're mentioning have already had a hugely successful run there. And now they want to go back to something smaller and they want to do something different. And I'll give you an example. So some founders of some of the more successful companies, a lot of people are going into the life sciences space, which I love because the way you look at it is The entire area of health, I would say, is changing because of data and the fact that the cost of computing is coming down so much and the ability of having biology connect with computer science is incredible. So some of the best companies out there right now are being created by technologists. And they really are kind of coming out of the area that says, let's do something in the health area. So a company that Google Ventures has in its portfolio is called Flatiron. And they actually were taking data to kind of connect it for oncologists. And the two people mm. that started it were actually ex-Googlers. They weren't out of life sciences. And the company just, you know, had a very, um, you know, exciting announcement where they got acquired by um, another big pharma company called Roche. Um, but if you look at that area, overall, some of the best talent is going there. I would argue the other area that the best talent is going into is actually learning because I talk to a lot mm. of startups right now, and they're not being founded by first-time entrepreneurs. They're mm. actually being founded by people who've already been successful, and they're going and going, wait a minute, this whole industry is broken. It still has a lot of work to do. What can we come in with and be able to change it? And so there's a little bit of a difference you know, going on overall, and that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the early employees at Netflix, called Neil Hunt, who actually did all of their production, has a company mm. in the life sciences space um, that he just started with some really interesting people. So I think there's a little bit of a change going on too. Mm. I don't know whether it's because we're becoming older or because we're seeing problems in a different way, but they're all good.
0: Hmm, that's uh, very interesting. And and um, if they, what are some of the trends uh, mm-hmm. that that you come across? Uh, in your journey that you you hold very dear to when you think about when you th- when you think about where the future is taking us like what are some of the things that that you follow that 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 helps you understand like if i want to understand where the future is where the future is for organization and and worker and workers what should i follow what where should i look for that
1: uh you mean like what you should read or just in general
0: so yes so, yeah, so in, in in general like where do you where should i look for science to help me see where the future is taking us
1: it depends i would say in which industry you're in and i think that's important to understand because you know where the future is taking us in life science is very different from where the future is taking us in enterprise computing so you know whichever area you're in learn on those areas you know overall i would say there are some in my opinion there are some general macro trends and of course i tend to be biased too I do believe health and life sciences will change a lot. I do believe that we will figure out how to cure cancer, maybe not per se in my lifetime, but probably in my kid's lifetime. I, fully, I do believe that. I do believe that even today, we can control the spread of cancer far better than we could control it 10 years ago, which is incredible overall. I think the ability to do genomic sequencing of your genes and be able to do it fast and to do gene editing with things like CRISPR are going to become more commonplace. I think that whole area Mm. is fascinating. And I think that's a macro trend because whether you're the CEO of a consumer company or the founder of a cosmetics company, you're all gonna die one day or Mm. you're know you gonna get sick. So the healthcare stuff definitely. I do also think there's lots of innovative things going on just within the healthcare system, like companies like One Medical. You know, how do you do patient care? How do you do wellness? I think that whole area is fascinating. Um, and I would say, you know, where we've gone with life sciences from a technology standpoint in the last 10 years, I don't think we've hit that probably in the last 100. There's a project that I was um, slightly involved in from Stanford that allowed you to actually just detect if you could have skin cancer via just kind of photographs and putting it against Mm. AI and ML databases. Uh, So there is that big part that I fully believe in. I think learning, as we spend most of the conversation on, is ripe for change because we've only talked about the US, but there Mm. is an entire world out there of 7.7 billion people. And somewhere in life, they will have to be learning. So if you ask me what I would love for learning to become, I would love for it to become almost a daily habit that you don't notice. Mm. So Larry Page says this really well. It's like something should be a habit like brushing your teeth every day where you don't think Mm. about it. So if the next generation could have something on their phone where they were constantly learning, but they didn't know they were learning, that would be huge. So for example, we automatically do Google searches without thinking that we're searching. It's just Mm. a fact. You know, we just do it really quickly. And I think that's going to happen with learning. And I think that's what will make it incredibly successful, where there'll be a mentality that says, learning doesn't stop. It doesn't stop at 22. It doesn't stop at 27. It doesn't stop at 10. And everybody has access to it. So because I spent, I grew up in India and spent a lot of time in Asia, I fully would love for any little girl in a village in India to have a Samsung or an Android phone and be able to learn something. If Mm. she could just even learn English, her economic power grows tremendously. And you can do all this, you know, and that I see happening in the next few years, you know, with companies like Duolingo and things like that. So I think learning is a big space. I think currency is a big space with crypto. Mm. Um, I know there's a lot of questions around it, but I think that's a big area. Uh, And I think, you know. I think transportation, I think anything that changes Mm. your daily life is a big area. And I do think we'll, you know, we see self-driving cars here. I fully believe they're going to happen very soon. Um, You know, and all of these things, I just see them going to the world very, very quickly. Um, Just overall, it's like phones, you know, I mean, so many countries in Asia just moved over to mobile phones. They just forgot about the landline totally. Um, And I think those things will happen.
0: Interesting. And thank you for sharing your perspective on that. I think one, one more area before we, we get to the last part of the conversation. Uh, we hear a lot about, a lot of brouhaha about AI taking away jobs. So from what is your perspective on on the the crosshair between the AI and human workers? Like what what do you see happening? What's your vantage point on the future of AI and humans?
1: I'm not an expert here there are a lot of experts that are weighed in on it right. i think we've always had this thing about whether robots will take over our jobs because i think we morph ai into something human and robots will take over jobs probably that are physical you know like baggage handler at the airport you know yeah okay you know but you know the the truth is Vishal, today robots and ai are in a lot of what we do you know mm-hmm. your refrigerator chances are you know your nest thermostat they're all doing something with ai The way we look at it taking over is because we kind of make it a human face, and that's what we're worried about. But I have a belief in humans. I believe that Mm -hmm. humans are creating the AI, and if they want to create the AI to take over, that could happen, and Mm -hmm. they have the ability to do what they can with it. I also really believe, and a lot of AI experts say this, this is very far along out there. You know, overall, it really, really is. I think there's been huge strides with Go and all of those areas. Um, But um, I think humans are special. Humans have things like common sense and they have emotion and things like that. And AI doesn't have it yet.
0: Interesting. And by the way, thank you so much for for an interesting conversation on on this future of work i do appreciate that so now we are almost at the tail end of the conversation and and i think in this part i want to spend few minutes on your journey and and i think one thing we ask uh, we ask our guest uh, with this like in your journey so far what are some of the some of the tenets that has helped you stay successful like what are some of the things that that has really helped you be what you are today that uh, that you could share with our listeners and viewers
1: so first of all, I'm not sure I'm really successful. I don't see it that way. And I think that's an important tenant because I think when people see themselves as being really successful, that's kind of a problem. Um, I think I have a lot more to achieve, um, but I like doing, I, I look at things in three categories. And I like being curious. I love learning, period. I mean, if there's a new industry, I'm just gonna learn about it. And if I can't get the right people to teach me, I'm gonna find somebody else. And I think that's important. Um, I like breaking glass. It, It's just a lot of fun. I think some people are more, you know, I'd like to just stay in and maintain. I'm not very good at maintaining. I like breaking or building, whichever way you look at it. Sometimes I break glass and it's a total failure, but you know, at least the journey was fun. Um, And um, for me, a big part of my success has been the teams and the leaders that I've been fortunate to work with. You know, I got fortunate to work with incredible people at Sun, incredible people at all of the other companies like Netflix and Walmart and you know, even startups, um, you know, overall, and that has been tremendously helpful. Um, I would say the other part is just execution. I think Mm. people have an idea a minute, uh, and you and I in the 60 minute conversation could have 60 ideas. It makes no difference Mm. if you can't execute brilliantly on one or two of them. And I think that's an important way to look at it too.
0: Interesting. And, um, what are some of your favorite reads um, that you would recommend? I think one thing that, that we found really exciting, uh, and I find really exciting, is that um, the re- the reading choices the guests make, and this really helped me understand their journey, and, and definitely love to know uh, some of the interesting read that you want to share with our listeners and viewers.
1: So I read a lot. So this could be like an hour conversation, so I'll just tell you that the, so I want to... So my big belief is the only way you can learn is to keep reading. And I say this to people mm-hmm. all the time. I go, lots of things will change. The way we communicate has changed, right? You and I will either text or do email. We will barely have a phone call. The way we view things has changed, right? We used to have DVD, you know, first we had TV, then we had DVDs, mm-hmm. and I have a daughter right now who has no idea what a DVD is, and basically believes everything should be streamed and on demand, mm-hmm. you know? And that'll change. So. All of these behaviors have changed, but reading hasn't, you know, and I don't think it will. Um, So I love reading. I read voraciously in the morning at any time. So I'll tell you just the recent books I read, which maybe might be helpful. Uh, So there's a book called Brotopia, which is written by a good Mm. friend of mine, Emily Chang, talking about Silicon Valley and the lack of, you know, women's presence. Mm. Um, There's a book called When, which I thought was really interesting. I think it's written Mm. by kit. And the idea is, could you take timing and make it scientific to prove certain outcomes? It was mm. fascinating. And I started using it. Um, I just finished reading Bad Blood, which is the paranormal story mm. on, you know, a company. Um, and that was interesting. Um, the book that I really have loved reading is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight from Nike. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a great book, I have to say. It's a great, great book. Um, and then John Doerr uh, just has a book called Measure What Matters that I actually mm-hmm. just finished reading yesterday, so it's just top of mind. And that's an interesting book only because I think it relates to the conversation you and I were having of how mm-hmm. do companies become successful. So you could mm-hmm. have the vision, but you really need to have an execution machine and have things that measures outcomes. And I would say John does a really good job of bringing mm. that up and giving really good case studies, uh, overall. Interesting.
0: On it. Interesting. Thank you for, for some amazing list on that. Definitely. It, uh, it adds to my list. Uh, so now, um, before we part ways, if, uh, you want, you want something that for the listeners and viewers to take away from our conversation, something that, um, that you think that is it's important. So what would what would that be? What would you like to share as a closing remark for our listeners and viewers?
1: So I would say, given the audience that you have, uh, which is filled with people that are looking at really interesting ideas and in startups, um, there's a lot that needs fixing in the world today. And there's a lot of things that I cannot even imagine that hasn't yet been invented. I think we're just starting to scratch the surface. So I would really say, you know, stay curious, stay relentless, and make a dent in the universe because at the end of the day you know kind of create and collect a lot of stories because you know a person who dies with the most stories probably wins
0: <laughs> that's that's a beautiful closing by the way and, and thank you so much and as I, I do appreciate you being very generous with your time and and candidly uh, talking about your journey and helping us understand your perspective on the future of work and future of organization i do appreciate that you're always welcome back on the podcast and um, thank, you. thank you again for your time.
1: No, thank you so much. I thought I was sick of home but actually
0: I was homesick never really knew that I would have to grow so quick. I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here just a couple dudes that I met once. That's it. And I go into the booth
1: feeling nervous got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless. Is the mic gonna don't know how to work this inside I'm breaking down. I hope I'm not up on a